how are you? Welcome to episode two of The State I Am In, a podcast all about creativity and the creative process. My name is Benjamin Walker, but you can call me Ben. Today is Tuesday, December the 31st, New Year's Eve. Although I will be recording the rest of this podcast tomorrow on New Year's Day. So I hope you've had a good new year and I'll see you in 2020. All the best for this particular year. Today I am excited to be talking to Matthias Com from The Burning Hell. The Burning Hell are a band from Canada. I first met them in 2015 at The Hairy Dog at a show my friend Phil put on where my band supported, but they've been going for many, many years and have released many, many albums. Um, They had a big radio hit a couple of years ago with a song with a very profane title, so I'm going to assume there will be some profanity in this podcast. So if that kind of thing um, upsets you, then uh, maybe plug your ears whenever he's about to talk about the song Fuck the Government, I Love You. That song is about a New Year's Eve party um, where the protagonists met and tonight um, Matthias and the Burning Hell are playing a New Year's Eve show in Ramsgate which me and the family are going to go see. Um, So we're going to take the four hour drive down to the coast this afternoon and spend a New Year with the Burning Hell which is going to be really cool. And tomorrow on New Year's Day Matthias is... um, agreed to talk on this here podcast though he says he might not be in um great shape i myself i'm going to be bushy-eyed and waggy-tailed <laughs> like a dog because today is the last day of my sober 2019 i was going to go all the way to my birthday in february but um that seems too hard and i think i've made my point so i'm going to practice what i believe is called temperance and see how that goes. Um, So tomorrow might be the first podcast where I have a few beers with my guest while we talk, but my tolerance is going to be zilch, so that's probably a bad idea, which is not going to happen. But I am so excited to talk to Matthias. He's one of the nicest people I've met in this here indie music scene. Um, I'm hoping to talk to him about nostalgia and the role that that plays in his band. And um, The Burning Hell are playing a UK tour proper in April. My band, Alex, and the Christopher Hale band are going to be opening up the show in Nottingham on the 19th. Although I can't remember where that's going to be at the minute. Um, We are also co-promoting that, so the fact that we don't know the venue is particularly troublesome. But yeah, I hope you've had a great holiday season i'm hoping to update this podcast every two weeks this year i've got some really cool guests lined up and to be honest talking to a band like the burning hell is hopefully going to open the door to talk to other cool people of this stature i've got a list in my mind of people i know through the music scene and um, otherwise who i intend to ask to talk to me about how they do it But for today, the first one of 2020, 2020, we're going to have to figure this out. The first one of this year is Matthias Calm from The Burning How. My name is Matthias, I came to say this. I've got a big bushy beard and kissable lips. I carry all my fat in my ass and my hips. The rest of me is skinny as a stick. My mom was hip and mini-skirted She was raised as a Catholic But then she converted She loved my dad's religion She loved him too And that's how I was born a Jew They lived and went to school in Buffalo But my dad, he decided that they had to go Cause the Vietnam War would not be good his health, and that's how I was born in the Commonwealth. Where we're born and when we die, we can't control that. And life in between is just born combat. There are targets you can shoot for, minds to submit, but most of life is an accident. 
believing is living if you just use your legs Cause everywhere is nice if you drink enough beer So some days I'm there and some days I'm here Right, um, so I'm sitting here with Matthias Com from The Burning Hell um, on the 1st of December, no it's not, it's the 1st of January. It is the 1st of January. It's the first time that's happened, it's going to happen every time I write the date now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, it's the 20s. It is. Yeah. Start of a new decade, and uh, the new decade started for, for me and you in sunny Ramsgate. Absolutely, yeah, last night at the Ramsgate Music Hall. Yeah, you have yeah. A, a good time? It was a great time. Um, well, welcome to this podcast, it's called The State I Am In. Great, um, it's good to be here. And we're going to talk about creativity a little bit. So I'll start with a question. Have you always been a creative person? Oh, that is a good one. I, I think so. I, I guess uh, my dad could probably answer that better than I could. But um, yeah, I remember from a pretty early age um, trying different things. Uh, I was really into building things when I was a little kid. Oh, really? Uh, I built a, the first thing I ever built was a guinea pig enclosure for my collection of guinea pigs when I was five. That's extremely practical. Yeah, very practical. And then I've moved slowly uh, but steadily into less practical creative endeavors ever since. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you started with the the, the, the the easier, more employable yes. architectural and carpentry just, skills. Exactly. And then just moved right away from it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, what was it that started to drive you towards um, music? Um, I think... I w- Partly, it's just that music was always around uh, in my house when I was growing up. My dad played guitar um, a lot, just kind of, you know, never professionally, just sitting around playing guitar. And my mom uh, played the flute. Um, and yeah, they just, and they, they were playing records all the time. So I grew up uh, hearing music kind of constantly. And I think just having access to instruments also. Mm. They never, my parents never put me in lessons or anything like that. Um, they kind of waited until I asked, uh, which I eventually did when I was 12 or 13. Uh, I asked to ask for drum lessons. So drums was my first like official instrument. But um, yeah, I think just being exposed to, to music. That's interesting you say your, your, your mother played the flute because um, I don't know how consciously that is, but as far back uh, of your band's materials I've listened to, even before Ariel joined with the clarinet, yeah. the wind instruments have been quite a... Yeah, part of the sound. I've always, um, I guess, yeah, not not as much in the first couple of records, but um, but certainly since Ariel's been in the band, yeah, it's been a, a major major thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and did you work a few jobs before coming good as a musician, or are you still doing anything? Oh to support yeah, um, no. I mean, I've always sort of done other things as well. Um, for years, I uh, I was teaching. Um, various things. I was an English teacher for a while, uh, and then, uh, did a stint teaching history, um, at, uh, the university that I, I went to in, in Canada. Uh, and then it kind of, but it was around 12 years ago or so I had a particularly bad year of teaching mm. and I'd been doing music kind of all along just on the side. And I thought, you know what, I'm not really making any money as a sessional instructor. Uh, and I hate this, these classes and, and I'm not having any, any fun really, uh, doing the teaching thing. So I'll, I'll just give it a year on quit and, and try just, just do music for a year. And it was dramatically unsuccessful, uh, <laughs> from a financial perspective, but it was in terms of every other metric, uh, it was the most fulfilling cool. year I'd ever had. And so, and it's, I, um, yeah, it's like over here teaching is brutal. So it's yeah. kind of the same in, same in Canada. It can be. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on where you are. Um, different, yeah, different, different unions and, and, and things are stronger, but, uh, stronger than others. But for, particularly for teaching in university, now the way things are going, uh, all the, you know, tenure jobs are, are disappearing and mm. getting turned into, you know, short-term sessional contracts where they can pay you like a fifth of the amount. And, uh, yeah, so that's, and that's kind of my situation now is I occasionally teach, um, I'll take like uh, sessional gigs um, when it's sort of convenient, like when yeah. I'm around for it. Uh, but apart from that, I'm just doing music. Yeah. Yeah. So you've managed to turn it around. So the teachings decide. Exactly. Yeah. That, yeah. Which is uh, impressive. It's yeah, it's good. It's a, I mean, it's definitely not a luxurious life, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a happy one. It's a happy one. Exactly. Like, yeah. like Cat Stevens says in the father and son song. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I, I mentioned a minute ago about um, 
aerial um, and clarinets and the, 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 the way you sound. I think the Burning Hell um, is an interesting um, thing because you've, you've had a few lineup changes over the last five to ten years. Oh, yeah. And that's your songwriting voice is consistent throughout. Yeah. But the sound of the band um, changes depending yeah. on your collaborators. Yeah. And I was just um, wondering if you had any thoughts about collaboration and the, the way that affects the sound if the limitations um yeah well, help I could you talk or... a lot about this you gotta you're gonna have to stop me um but uh so when the the band started it was really just um the first maybe three years or so uh it, i was just inviting whoever wanted to get on stage with me it was really uh very was, very that loose. was the time to join the bird and hell that was the time it yeah. was anybody <laughs> anybody and really it, it led to some incredibly strange uh touring lineups we did one tour i remember was uh ukulele that was me uh omnichord trumpet <laughs> banjo yeah and yeah that's that's not a good combination really <laughs> i mean it sounds kind of fun but it, it really isn't uh and so i don't know there's there, there's been a lot of inconsistency um over the years and then maybe around 2011 or so the band sort of settled into a five or a six piece mm. lineup with some pretty consistent um players and it became slowly started started becoming more of a rock band and then those rock band years were like maybe 2012, 2013. And then now it's sort of fragmenting again and it's becoming different things. And it's really just up to, um, I've got people that I love mm. performing with and love touring with, um, Ariel, Darren, Jake, uh, Nick. Is it just a question of geography? It's a question of geography and it's also a question of kids. Yeah. Um, cause as, uh, people have kids and, 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 uh, sort of settle, settle down, uh, with their new families and things like that, it's harder for them to tour. And so for Nick, for example, he, I mean, he'd been touring with me since, I don't know, 2009, I think mm. 2008 actually. Um, and he had a kid three years ago now and he really, when, you know, when, when he found out that he was going to be a dad, he was like, you know, I'm really determined this is not going to change anything. And I was mm -hmm. like, man, Nick, I've, you know, I've been down this road <laughs> with other people before. It's definitely going to change your life. Like yeah. definitely. You can't just, you can't just decide that you're going to keep touring. I kind of went the other way. Uh, the guitarist of my band, Stevens, had a kid. Yeah. And um, I paused all commitments to the band for a year or two. And yeah. uh, turns out I didn't want that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to keep going with it. But I think it, it's very person to person. Yeah, it is person to person. It depends on everyone's situation. But, um, but um, losing a, a collaborator like Nick, that must have been quite um, stressful at the time. Maybe. It's definitely stressful. I mean, especially when... Uh, at the time, it really felt like, you know, it had been the, that five-piece band for a number of years at that point, three years, I think. Uh, and we'd really settled into that that lineup. It was very sort of comfortable. It was very mm. consistent and easy and all that kind of stuff. And so at first, it was quite stressful. And I do, I definitely miss Nick. Uh, I miss playing with him and I miss his contributions and everything. But uh, at the same time, you know, Nick not being able to tour anymore has really pushed us in different directions um, and we've discovered new things. Like I've become a much stronger guitar player in his absence. Yeah. Um, Darren turns out is a much better bass player than he is a guitarist, which is crazy because he's one of the best <laughs> guitarists I've ever met. So he's one of them guys who just seems to be. Up to I play. know it's so annoying. It's so <laughs> annoying, but, uh, but yeah, so it's good. I mean, it, ultimately it's nice to sort of be challenged and, and yeah, pushed in different directions. I've noticed from the outside with you guys, cause, um, you're great. Um, the great hook for the burn hell with me i've always been a lyric key guy yeah so it's always been the storytelling and the lyrics but then when um you see it now they the old guitar playing is more at the forefront you yeah think, oh, wow it's um he's an actual musician yeah <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. yeah i mean i'm still i'm very self-conscious about my guitar playing still and i probably always will be um but uh but it, it's nice to sort of be be challenged that way for sure mm. yeah and then you can still always hide behind Darren a little exactly bit. yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah um so do you um write all the songs yourself and then bring them in or does the songwriting process is that also collaborative sometimes um this is a good question so I would say 90% of the time uh the songs have come from me uh first and in most cases I've had them like fairly developed when mm. I brought them to the band um particularly albums sort of like like people for example or flux capacitor albums like that like i have all the i wrote all the parts yeah for the different uh instruments 
myself and then sort of brought them to the band and then and then you know we sort of changed them as 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 uh as we go a little bit but yeah they, they arrive pretty fully formed in those cases and then in recent years i've started trying to be a little bit more open-minded and a little less uh, controlling about it and just mm. come with basic skeletons kind of chord structure i get the impression on revival beach was uh, had some chunks written in the studio revival beach was very collaborative and it was actually the first album i've ever made that features a couple of songs written entirely by ariel and darren mm. um and, and not by me which is really fun and i'm hoping uh, to do more of that so your career year. trajectory is currently ben and sebastian circa yeah yeah it's fine i mean it's it's really it's fun when you i think when you get to the point where you feel so comfortable with other people um in the studio or on the road or whatever it's fun to relinquish control a little mm. bit and and just see where that that goes because you know they've got the people I, i've been working with um for years now they're all um incredibly creative people and they've got great ideas and yeah and I, I love yeah relinquishing some of that that control i suppose it sure. takes um, some of the pressure off as well definitely take some pressure off for sure yeah yeah rather than having to you know, write 12 songs every you know, yeah every or like i mean i don't mind the, the idea of writing i still i think i i don't think i would ever be able to give up control of lyrics mm. that is the one thing um like the songs on the two things on revival beach that ariel and darren wrote are instrumentals uh i wouldn't I don't think I'd be able to put out a record of my own anyway with with other people's lyrics. So um, let's let's talk about your lyrics yeah. for a bit then. Um, I was thinking about them yesterday, and I think um, on the drive drive down here, and I think my favorite parts of your lyrics are the bits that don't make metric sense. I mean, not yeah. sense, but for some reason you stick like um, a stupidly long sentence in yeah. a normal measure of music. Yeah, like um, like little wordplay games, like the bit in uh, "Fuck the Government" when you talk about. Baudrillard. Yeah. But there's examples of that through so many Yeah. So many songs that shouldn't work on paper, but then they They definitely they totally don't work do. on paper. Yeah. yeah. They they um So is that an, an intentional it's thing? Yeah. Very intentional, yeah. And it's become more and more intentional. I think I've always had that tendency. Um but then I remember um kind of being uh criticized for it uh after people came out. Mm. Um in, in a couple of reviewers sort of critiqued that and said, you know, is this just doesn't work. There's too many syllables in these lines or whatever. And a, a typical sort of reactionary move. I just decided, well, I'm going to double <laughs> down on that, that and, yeah. and, and just go really intentionally go for that. Um, and I, I enjoy it a lot because finding ways to, you know, finding ways to, to play with meter in songs um, really pushes, I think pushes songs in, into interesting directions. And you can't, it's harder to do, I think, um, on the written page in poetry. Yeah. I mean, because um, with music, you've got the audible measure yeah. of the beat. So when you break that beat, you know, there's a there's a actual dissonant effect. Absolutely. Whereas, you know, if you're reading that on a page, you might think, oh, he's just, he's just gone a bit AWOL with that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's harder to um, notice the effect. Yeah. Because the voice can then become a percussive instrument, too, yeah. which is nice. Uh, and, and I've you always... get to slip in little references to Baudrillard. Exactly. Which, yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, it's it's a, it's it's always a challenge. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make it um, make anything unintelligible. I I, mm. I always want the, the lyrics to come across. So it's not just about um, squeezing as many syllables into a line just for the sake of doing it. But if it if it works, if it suits the song, if it serves the song, yeah. then great. One of my challenges actually that I've set myself for this coming year creatively is to try and write. Uh, at least a couple of songs with as few lyrics as possible mm. um, really sort of distilled uh, which I'm not good at so <laughs> that's that's a yeah that's a, that's um, a struggle what's I know you did um, Public Library is a, 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 an album with the theme of the songs are like stories like yeah. book stories so um, what do you read to influence um, your writing or what do you read all kinds of things I'm a big sci-fi geek uh, I'm trying to re read more genre this year, so I'll take okay. some recommendations off you. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I can talk generally or specifically, but uh, generally speaking, I read a lot of science fiction. Uh, I read, I revisit um, classics a lot, things especially, I mean, I took a lot of uh, English throughout university mm -hmm. and uh, read a lot of stuff that I didn't fully appreciate at the time, I think. So I'm trying to, also trying to sort of revisit some of those those things. Um 
uh, don't I don't read a, a ton of nonfiction, uh, but that's another resolution of mine. Mm. This is New Year's. I got to talk about resolutions, but yeah. another resolution of mine is to to read more nonfiction. <clears throat> um, but uh, for public library in particular, I was thinking about um, each of those songs was more or less influenced by um, either a particular genre or. Uh, even a particular book there's a song on there um that's about the experience of reading moby dick oh yeah uh and which is a, a book that i had to read in high school and that's, just absolutely hate it's been it. on my shelf for years that's my it. white whale yeah, yeah absolutely and it is for a lot of people mm. and then i rediscovered it a few years ago and thought you know this is a book that is very well regarded and i don't know anybody that's actually read it and mm. and loved it um and so I, I read it and I got completely sucked in the middle bits, super boring. But other than that, it's a, it's a great book. It's very funny. And I didn't, didn't expect that. And so that sort of sent me down a rabbit hole of learning about Melville and his life. And maybe, um, we can do a published, a publishing house where we republish the classics with the middle bits chopped out. Yes, absolutely. Like, yeah. Uh, that's a good idea. My friend, uh, well, Alex read, uh, war and peace and he says it's really good except for the last 300 pages. Yeah. yeah it's just, just a... cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think there actually is an edition of Moby Dick without the middle oh, yeah. chunk, but which I which I didn't read. But um, yeah, so all over the place really in terms of in terms of books that influence me. But uh, I'm always I I'm always reading something, and it inevitably finds a way mm. to affect the songwriting. Sometimes in terms of direct references, uh, and then other times it just sort of affects the language of a song. Yeah, because it's um. It's what you're putting into your head. Yeah. Actually. One of my favorite books ever is uh, Ridley Walker. I don't know if you've read that. I've um, heard of it. Uh, a couple of years ago, a, a creative writing lecturer from my undergrad. Um, with, with, it's the one that's uh, written in very non-standard English. Yes. Uh, one of the tasks was to rewrite a passage of that oh, properly. Yeah. Properly, yeah. So I've, I've not read it. But. It's fantastic, I think. Um, Russell Hoban and... Uh, and uh, that book I've read it reread it a million times and it's one of those books that actually every time you you come back to it the language sort of seeps into your brain a little bit more mm. and um I love what he's done what he does with that book because the first you know the first time you read it maybe the, I don't know the second by the second or third chapter then you're starting to sort of grasp what he's what he's talking about or what people are talking about in mm. the book um but at first it's completely unintelligible or almost completely unintelligible but then you sort of you just get it, it just clicks eventually. So it's similar to uh, Joyce in that way, or is yeah, Joyce a bit more. May, a Joyce would be extreme. a bit, bit. I'm not Try Finnegan's Wake, but I mean Portrait of the Artist. Yeah, um, a bit, a bit similar, I guess. It's it's a you know the language in Ridley Walker is is uh, post apocalyptic. You know, yeah. thousands of years in the future after a nuclear holocaust in actually right where we are in Kent, huh. um, and uh, and so the the language is is sort of what. Russell Hoban sort of imagined people would have um, still hung on to from, from English and then bits of things that uh, are new and whatever. And the grammar is quite, uh, the fundamental grammar is similar, but um, a lot of this, the, the, the words have changed. And um, anyway, the, all I was going to say about that is just that um, experiments with language like that, I think are really uh, wonderful when they creep into songwriting and, yeah. and, and creating, I like the idea of creating a world that um, exists across multiple songs as well. So I, I often, I have characters reoccur yeah. in, in different songs. And I don't know if anybody really notices that, but I, I like doing it. So yeah, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. Yeah, the, being, the, being playful across it. John Donnell does that a lot more explicitly. Yes, yeah, absolutely. He has uh, yeah. reoccurring characters. But then that brings me to, um, very neatly, so thank you for that, to the next point of the, the thematic nature of the albums. Yeah. Um, because they're, they're, they're bordering on concept albums in the way that they're generally themed. Flux yeah. Capacitor is all about nostalgia. Yeah. People, all the songs are named after different types, types of, of people. people yeah. Public library, as we said, is a library and, a, yeah. and, and so forth. So do you generally come up with the f idea for the album and then write the songs to that? Or do you notice, oh, I've written four songs about nostalgia? Exactly. Yeah, that's the, the like. latter, for sure. Yeah, the theme emerges, emerges from the writing rather than the other way around. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've tried once or twice to, to sort of start with the concept and, and then write the songs for it, and it never really works that well. Like, uh, Ariel and I are releasing our second duo album in yeah. April, and it's all labor songs um, for the gig economy. Um, and that really came out of a couple of songs uh, that that shared that theme, and then I thought, 
oh yeah keep going on this train for a while so yeah that's that's interesting so like um you're not giving yourself the, uh, the creative limitation but you're just following the exactly. thread of thought to to be a yeah kind of cohesive project yeah rather than a collection of songs exactly yeah yeah i yeah because I, I never it never occurred to me until um i was thinking about it how for the last 10 years your albums have all had a unifying theme yeah i mean I, it's it's a funny thing to think about albums at all these days really because what's the point Mm. I ask myself that all the time. <laughs> what's the point of writing songs, period? But especially, what's the point of collecting them into an album? I mean, very few people buy albums anymore, uh, in a in a broad sense. Um, you know, everyone we've returned to the the dominance of the single, etc., yeah. etc. So why even collect songs into an album? And and to me, like the only reason to keep doing it is is to try and make a larger statement than just than you can do with just one song. I th- I, th- I think it uh, definitely does, and uh, when you do. Um, you to do the single thing. Yeah, you generally don't make it easy on yourself. But if by the you know, the biggest single of your last ten years has been "Fuck the Government." Yes, and it's weird that that's such a radio hit with uh, <laughs> such a profane, <laughs> profane title. So yeah, you're not even doing the singles too easily. No, no, it's 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 a strange that's a strange world too. I don't think I've ever. Uh, ever... I assume you didn't think uh, that was going to be the one that got so oh, picked up. Oh no, on. not at all. No that quite the opposite actually i was sure that it would never get played but it struck a chord with people <laughs> yeah. yeah i don't think you cut that one for there's a there's a t-shirt in this there is a t-shirt <laughs> yeah. um yeah so do you write often i mean you seem very uh, productive from i'm glad that it appears that way from the outside i don't feel very productive um i struggle quite often with uh write, severe writer's block um mm. and I've tried all kinds of different things. Well, maybe that's why you do um, chase the, the album thematically, yeah. because, you know, you think you're on a roll and it's easy to... It is definitely easier. I find I write in, in, in chunks much better than I write. I mean, I'm not... I know lots of people that can just sort of sit down every day and write something, and I've never been able to do that. I mm. need... Uh, when I try to do that, inevitably, uh, it, it doesn't turn out. So I have to sort of wait until the situation is right. And certain things help for sure like i need i need to be alone uh and i I mean like alone alone like i need to be there can't be anyone else in the in the house uh or or wherever even if i know they can't hear me in another room it's still for some reason i think that's a common thing yeah even with this podcast i mean my family's here with me but it's it's a weirder thing yeah to try and do something like this with even loving eyes around you definitely exactly yeah Yeah, because because it just it introduces a pressure on the one hand and then Mm. for me on the other hand uh i think it's a really important thing to fight uh the idea of an audience uh yeah creatively whatever it is whether it's music or or painting or writing i think if you're not creating something first and foremost for yourself then you're doing it wrong and it's a very um it's a very intimate thing to do the process of writing and the difference with songwriting as opposed to like writing a poem or something is it's kind of out loud yeah. You know, your failures occur out loud yeah. where you try different things. <laughs> they sure do. <laughs> so, yeah, the need for solitude, I can I can see. Yeah, it's... and yeah, because failure is such an important part of the process too. Yeah. Like I, I, I probably write, I don't know, fifty songs for every every fifty bad songs for every one yeah. song that that makes it to other people's ears, and that's essential. I think mm. if I didn't write those. Uh, if I didn't write those, I, I would the bad ones. I would never get the good ones. And I also think that no matter how much practice you get at whether it's songwriting or whatever it is, your, whatever your creative uh, endeavor is, no matter how much you practice at it, you still have the capacity to do something terrible. Yeah, definitely. And as evidenced by so many different people's careers, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and I think embracing that is really important. And and uh, and so yeah, I need that. I need time to write the crap, you know? I yeah. need a lot of time to write the crap before I can get something good. But do you ever look at guys like, like Jeff Lewis, who um, puts out so much stuff, but also works so hard on the other side of it? Yeah. Like the, 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 the day job side of, I mean, his work rate is something ridiculous. It uh, is. And I think if you ask Jeff, though, he would say that he doesn't feel very productive. Mm. It's really interesting because... Um, he tours so much. I mean, he's a bit, we're similar in that way. Like we both tour a lot and the administrative kind of, yeah, as you put it, like the day job side of, mm. of he's, music. He's, he's great at that. 
He's really good I at it. I never this. appreciated that until starting to do things to get my name out there as a writer and all the yeah. social media. It already seems too much of a ball ache at it's a small really, level. Yeah, yeah. But when you're him who's actually got, you know, tens of thousands yeah. of people looking at him. Yeah. I guarantee he would, if he was here right now, he would say it's still a huge struggle though. And mm-hmm. and I think that the, it's always, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge constantly. Do you sort of seek help with that side of it mm-hmm. and relinquish control to a booking agent or to a, whatever, you know, a manager or something like that? Well, you guys are pretty DIY, so how do you Absolutely. deal with did that whole thing? Are you just naturally quite good at it or... I, I am good at it. I think I'm a much better uh, administrator than I am a songwriter, actually. Um, <laughs> that's where my real skill lies. And so if, if there's any bands out there that need a manager, <laughs> well, I, I always, switch jobs. <laughs> I always thought, you know, cause there's so much onus now on the artists to market themselves. Absolutely. If you were good at that, you'd become a marketer or something. Yeah. Well, okay. So we're talking about maybe two different things here. There's, there's the administrative side and then there's the marketing side. I am mm. terrible at the marketing side. Uh, I am very good at, you know, booking tours and, mm. um, you know, doing the, the sort of day-to-day management stuff, but really bad at the entrepreneurship part of it. And I, it's actually something that, that I resent quite a bit, um, that not just musicians, but everybody is now expected to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, because of the rise of social media now. Exactly. Yeah. We're all, we're all selling something constantly and it's just, I find it like absolutely it's crass and it's not what I got into this for. And I've been thinking a lot about this very recently, actually, just like, is there a way to still make a go of this and step back from social media? I don't know if you, mm-hmm. do, you do you know a band from Canada called The Weaker Thans? I love The Weaker Thans. Okay, so John Sampson, the singer from The Weaker Thans, um, is also a solo, fantastic yeah, solo artist. Solo, yeah. um, and about five or six years ago, he completely left all social media, even email. Mm. Um, he just kind of dropped it all. And... Uh, and it's, I think it's been quite a struggle. Yeah. Because um, he's just not present. Well, like I said, I'm a big fan of not knowing what he's been up to for the last yeah. few years. Yeah. I mean, he's been putting out records and going on tours and stuff like that, but he, you just don't hear about it yeah. because he's not, even though, you know, he's at a level where he could easily have people do that kind of stuff for him. Yeah. It's just not, you know, it does make a big difference when when you, as as the, you know, creative person or whatever, you take, kind of take charge of that stuff. And put yourself out there, but it's very difficult to do it and not feel gross. Well, I suppose um, his career has been because uh, Weekends, uh, mid nineties, late nineties. They've seen the music industry change Absolutely. throughout all this, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and um, propaganda and stuff. And yeah, you know, bigger labels behind him. Yeah. Um, so now he's seeing from both perspectives. Yeah, and I just I feel like I I understand that exhaustion of, from social media so well, and I don't mm-hmm. want to be. I don't. I'm so tired of, of having to be an entrepreneur and seeing everybody else have to be an entrepreneur too. You know, like everybody is on Instagram or whatever, you know, mm. get sponsoring, getting sponsored by something. The fact that influencers are a thing on, on Instagram where you can pay exactly. people to pretend to have read your book. Yeah. Is incredibly yeah, it's depressing. Just, it's so strange. It's so strange. And I mean, because as media, music media, for example, disappears, as we lose, you know, more and more. I never liked, you know, I never liked the idea that the, the music world was dominated by critics, but I miss them now. Yeah. I really do because, um, you know, now we just sort of have to write about ourselves. Yeah. You know, everybody's doing that or, or yeah, as you say, like pay, you know, pay influencers to you know, sell your clothes or whatever it is that you do. You yeah. know, it's just, it's a strange world and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. That's my grumpy old man statement. Well, that's, that's cool. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I just read, uh, you know, it's, it's the cap- post-post-capitalism. Yeah. I just read that 23 things they don't tell you about capitalism. Mm. And I haven't read that. A lot of it went over my head, but I know I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you, yeah, um, drafting, do you draft much in your writing? Because like you would say, your lyrics are quite precise in the way they are. Or yeah. Do you just, does that come organically? It comes pretty organically. I do... Um, I have started to open myself up to editing more uh, in recent years. Um, I would say the first maybe three or four records that I put out are more or less unedited. I mean, I read an interview in Nick Cave a few years ago where he says he wished somebody told him to edit his songs in yeah. his early career. Cause... Yeah, it could make a big difference. It's yeah. Actually, it's good. I mean, there's also, you know, I always think about Leonard Cohen mm. uh, saying in one interview that, uh, you know, some of his songs take decades yeah 
and he's still rewriting them. You did, know. Did you see that recent Nick Broomfield documentary about um, him? No. Um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite disappointing. Just because uh, this, I've had this idea of Leonard Cohen in my head for all this time, and like you know, the Isle of Wight festival where he went out in his jammies, yeah, <laughs> and just calmed everybody down. Yeah, but it turns out he was just like. On, on, on drugs the whole time. Oh, really? I thought he was just so zen and chill. <laughs> but he was just on so much like Amblin or yeah. whatever. Because, you know, the Isle of Wight 70 festival was famously very violent. Yes, yeah, and yeah. he just went out there like, in the middle of that. He said something like, um, wake me up when you find an organ and then went for a nap. And he came out in his pyjamas and just chilled the whole thing Incredible. down with his zen philosophy. It sounds like he was just... He was just on, was on a ton on, of drugs. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but apparently, I mean, he he would rewrite the songs that he had already released. You know, he would just keep. And he's the quintessential Leonard Cohen, and I think Dylan, in a way, that the quintessential um, idea of modern genius. You think, yeah. look at Leonard Cohen, you think a genius, but then, as we're saying, it's work rate, and it's him hiding the fifty terrible shitty songs Absolutely. that he has to write yeah, to write yeah, every yeah. masterpiece. One hundred percent. Yeah, everyone, you know, uh, everyone probably has that same process. I'm sure Bob Dylan has a large catalog of terrible. I think his quality songs. can. Trolls. <laughs> it's, it's built to slipped a bit in the last last year but um yeah that's actually that's a really interesting thing and that's a terrifying part of aging is looking at other people's careers and seeing definite dips mm. and and you know a lot of them do tend to be with the fads at the time and that's i think true. that's probably gonna and maybe that'll be a good thing about our current age that might go because everything's becoming so flatlined that's true um but you know dylan's 80s period where yeah some of the songs work but the aesthetics and the way they're produced are terrible um, hasn't aged well no um i think i think cohen again avoided it because when he went synthesized driven he still yeah release some great records oh absolutely but yeah I mean, I'm Your Man is incredible I know yeah. I know Yaya Herman June loves Shot of Love but I yeah. can't understand <laughs> the appeal of that record but um, you know various positions in the Leonard Cohen synthesizer period he kind of aged into better yeah definitely. but maybe uh, you know now the current indie bands are less susceptible to trends that might be true I hope that's true it's but partly it's 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 avoiding trends but also as a, from the songwriting perspective, mm. you know, do the are the songs going to still be good in ten years or twenty years or whatever? And and I don't. It'll be sad when I get to the point where I'm only writing crap and I don't write any good songs. But what I am most afraid of is not having people to tell me mm. that it's crap. You know, that it, people that I trust and that I love. Around. How is how is the band as a, as a sounding board? For pretty the, good. The songs? Yeah, pretty good. Ariel especially is, mm. is pretty. She's quite critical. So. Uh, that's good. I can play her a song and I know just from her face. She doesn't even have to say anything. I'm just like, nope, okay, put that one away. Nope, won't play that one. And usually things don't even make it to the stage where I play them for the rest of the band until I'm really sure of them myself, but still a few of them yeah. get get rejected. Yeah. And you just kind of know. You're just like playing it and you're just watching their faces and it's like, no, this isn't working. Well, so. <laughs> you know, if you didn't have that face, you'd have a, a room full of exactly that face if exactly it gets too far yeah yeah. To... yeah which is terrifying yeah. yeah but you know you must do pretty well with that kind of i assume you don't regularly you must do well at most shows now i mean i doubt doubt there's much bombing experience in your recent years oh no there's lots of bombing we just did our first big american tour this year um and uh, a lot of bombing how there. do you how do you how do you deal with that not well <laughs> not well no it's it's kind of crushing actually um because um you know i only know you guys from the uk perspective yeah do you do um in an indie perspective which i appreciate isn't the same um measure that other people use yeah um, you guys are doing really well yeah I mean, um it's nice to feel like that you know you it's... get to tour uk and yeah do all right we yeah and, but and how is it in other parts of the world how are you how are you well, receive back in canada that's the thing is that i feel like canada i mean I, all, I, I trash Canada too much and I shouldn't, I should stop. But just one thing <laughs> is that Canada is quite conservative uh, in terms of its, its um, music taste nationally. Uh, and I how, think that how did that Brian Adams out? My, <laughs> my stuff has always been, I think a, just a little bit too strange for, yeah. and I don't consider it strange at all. So it's funny to realize that, but you know, if you listen to sort of mainstream Canadian radio or not even mainstream, if you listen to like alternative Canadian radio, the stuff that is mostly getting played is quite safe mm. and quite dull uh, for the most part. And I don't think there's a lot of room for, for other 
other things. And, and um, how did America take you? Very, it was a complete, a complete roller coaster, and that was the hardest thing to deal with. We would play, you know, we did six weeks pretty much back-to-back shows every night, and almost without exception, we would go from one show that went over quite well to the next show, which was just a disaster. Uh, so Just in um, apathetic audiences? Or? Partly or lack of audiences, there's that mm-hmm. too. But I also noticed this an interesting thing about North America in general is that there are different cultures of humor yeah. across the continent and and they sort of run in generally speaking in north south bands uh so the west coast of canada and the west coast of the united states are quite similar in being almost i would say humorless yeah uh everyone is very very nice um some of the the friendliest people ever but uh they tend to lack any sense of sarcasm um they have no appreciation for irony uh and that is bad for me yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's really bad whereas the east coast um is pretty dramatically different and and i think the east coast of canada and the east coast of the united states share um a sense of humor with the uk a little bit Mm. more um and so i did notice that for sure we did way better on the east coast than we did on the west coast um, so you've toured over here a lot since um, I first came to know you yeah. in 2015. Is that generally um, because you know that's where you were doing doing quite well? Is it like you know Hasselhoff going to Germany or something? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean the UK. <clears throat> to be totally honest, it was never uh, a place that we thought about coming because we'd only heard horror stories mm. from other bands, and so we never even considered it. And then our record label in Germany sent uh, people in 2012 or so when it came out, I think, no, 2013, uh, sent it to a couple of promoters over here. And one of them sent it on to Mark Riley. Ah, And then he started playing amateur rappers kind of relentlessly uh, for a few weeks. And then all of a sudden Mm. we were able to book a tour here. It was crazy. It, I, I don't know anywhere else where there's still uh, influential radio in yeah. that way. So we really owe absolutely everything to Mark Riley playing the hell out of amateur rappers. He champions quite a lot of um, indie, indie bands in, in, yeah. in this kind of... Like, uh, I know um, Wave Pitchers play oh, yeah. sing a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so that's the only reason we started coming over here. And the first two, couple tours we did weren't good either you know that by by most metrics that we mm. we lost money and the shows were small or whatever but they've they've built from there and i mean we'll never be famous i know that and i'm fine with that but uh but uh sustainable career is possible over here yeah, in a way that it isn't in... i was speaking about that a couple of years ago with uh dave tattersall actually from the wave pictures yeah. the idea that you know in the indie scene there's a there's a ceiling oh yeah where you get to where you plateau where you can't play bigger rooms no but you know you don't want to place smaller so you're quite comfortable with that i mean i think your ceiling's still a way off yeah I i'm not saying you, not yeah, saying yeah. you peaked last night in ramsgate yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't i mean to be honest like my my ideal size of an audience is no more than 100 mm. uh for me to feel good about the the show like i like to be able to uh i feel like anyway if i if i had the opportunity i'd like to uh be able to meet everybody yeah in the audience uh that never actually happens, but um, but I like the idea of being able to do that. And so playing, I mean, I've, we've played much larger shows than that, um, but I generally don't like them as much. So, right. on the other hand, you know, a hundred to two hundred capacity rooms, you can definitely make a sustainable go of it if you mm. if you tour constantly. So, yeah. like a la Jeff Lewis, you know, he's that's the size of shows he's playing most of the mm. time, uh, and uh, and he can do it. So. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, 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 so sustainability. He's, I think that's that's the thing is that artistically, whether you're, uh, whatever you're doing, painting or making music or, or writing, um, sustainability should be the goal because uh, no one is ever gonna, you know, or not no mm. one, but it is very very difficult to to go past that ceiling. But the ceiling is fine. You know? Yeah. 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 Sustainability is the is the difficult thing because you know I, I, it might be um, a British sensibility uh, in the capitalist society. But, you know, the, there's always a thing in the back of your head going, you know, what gives you the right to not have a proper job in, yeah. in air quotes or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you really, but, um, Who do you think you are? Yeah, who do you think yeah. you are? That kind of thing. Yeah. And that's kind of why I struggle in trying to set out to make a living as an artist, you know. 
but there's also yeah i mean i think that there's also no we're so addicted to this capitalist idea of progress it's Mm -hmm. just it's embedded in every part of our society and so if we if we don't constantly get bigger or more successful or earn more money or whatever then we have this uh you know fear of failing all the time like oh if if i'm not playing twice as big rooms in in and the next time we release an album, then then the band has failed or whatever. And it's, yeah. No, it hasn't at all. No, yeah. if you're still writing songs that you stand behind, and you're still enjoying performing, and you're still or whatever, you know that that's success, and that's the only metric that matters. So definitely, yeah. So um, have you got any, what, New Year's Day? Have you got any resolutions for this year beyond the the book ones? Oh wow, um, yeah. Any tr- goals for the bands? Any? Well, yeah, we're we're. Uh, working on a new record this year um, that will be out either the end of this year or early in 2021. God, so strange to say that number. Which uh, is uh, the follow-up to Don't Believe the Hyperreal, the first Ariel Sharrett and Matthias Calm record. I was wondering, what's the interest? What's the difference between the two? Why split them in different names? Um, is it just the absence of Darren? or so, <laughs> is it the absence of Darren, the absence of Jake, uh, sometimes the absence of Nick. I mean, yeah, partly when we first started playing shows as a duo uh back in 2011 2012 or so uh we ariel and i uh wanted to tour more than the rest of the band could and so we thought well let's try and do some shows just the two of us and so in the beginning it was just we were playing burning hell songs yeah uh just as a duo and then very quickly realized that that we would just then be the sort of like burning hell light or something like that you know which we didn't like and so then we decided that we wanted to do a record specifically just for the two of us. And so that was Don't Believe the Hyper Real. And then, um, yeah, this is the follow-up, um, Never Work, it's called. And uh, and that actually, that comes out in April. Um, so we're touring that through April. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then another full band record at the end of the year, I think. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, again, that's a big workload for you to have. Definitely, to, yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not a... It's not an unmanageable thing, I think, though. We'll, we'll get there. Is it pretty much written, the, the Burning Hell one? Half written, I would say. Yeah. That's cool. Half written, half recorded already, actually. Are you, uh, where are you recording it? Here, over here? Or? All over the place. So we did, just uh, a couple weeks ago, we did four songs in Newfoundland at uh, Jake, our sometimes drummer, sometimes keyboardist <laughs> studio there. And then we're recording uh, a few more in the next month or so uh, in Italy. Okay. And then back to Canada probably in May to record the rest of it. Cool. So, I mean, I don't want to put too much pressure on myself, but I think, yeah, by the end of May, it'll be done. Internationally. Yeah. yeah. Um, I forgot to set a timer for this. I don't know how long we've gone, uh, which is pretty amateur of me. But before we finish, I want to talk about uh, nostalgia for a bit. Oh, yeah, and, let's do uh, it. My favorite. The prevalence yeah. of nostalgia in your in your work. Um, I've got a few, I've got a few, a few theories on, on, on nostalgia here in, in, in your band, uh, but it definitely seems to be a driving force in, in your writing. Totally. Um, just is there any reason you're so fascinated with the concept uh yeah you're so fa- I'm, there are so many reasons um one thing that i'm very interested in is the way that we as humans um but especially seemingly now at this this moment in human history um have become so obsessed with the past mm. um in popular culture uh, and the past is so uh, the nostalgia is so hot right now. I it's mean, hot, with it's the hot. rise of Stranger Things. Absolutely, but it's been hot. It's always been hot, and that's that's really interesting. You know, throughout human history, we've always there's always been for every generation there's been a, a, an era that they've looked back to with, yeah. with nostalgia, and even even in the Roman Empire, you know, that this this is the thing that we've. It's a very human uh, condition, nostalgia. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, now we really seem to to have gone in for it so wholeheartedly while at the same time completely ignoring the lessons that the past can teach us. And we've only taken the, the sort of, uh, mm. the, the nice bits or the bits that we, we, you know, want to remember fondly and we're completely ignoring everything else. And it is really quite destructive. So I'm always fascinated with nostalgia because I think it can be really, um, it can be really, uh, creatively, it can be generative, but it can, it can also be, um, Definitely, yeah. Poisonous. Because you, you do deal with it from both sides. It's not yeah. just like, you know, remember this kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Um, 
because um, you know flux capacitor yeah. is the the big magnum opus of your work about nostalgia. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, and it starts with my name is Matthias, yeah. which is um, kind of your manifesto, but yeah. saying how you became formed through your life experiences. Yeah, I mean it's saying who you are, but very much from who you came from. Yeah. Um, but then songs like Grown Ups yeah. and People um, and the wonderful song in the future off of Don't Believe the oh, Hyper Real. Thank you. Um, are very much dealing with people using nostalgia as a crutch. Yes. And, you know, and not actually. Not progressing. Not progressing. Not, not moving forward. It's not, quite a f- not even seeing. Quite a lot of your songs seem to have the. Um, the thing of somebody from your past writing to you or, yeah. you know, trying to get in touch with you through Facebook or whatever. Yeah. That's, um, yeah. Three or four of your songs, I noticed. Yeah. But, um, so it's not, like I say, all just rose tint glasses. No, not but at all. But then the rose tint glasses are also there. They're there as well, because there is something positive about it. And I think that, you know, just like anybody else, I have very fond memories that I want, I'm, I hope I can hold on to forever, you know? Mm. Uh, and, uh, and I think that there's a place for that. And I think that there is something constructive about reflecting on the past and and embracing the good things about the past but at the same time uh we're just collectively doing that yeah so much right now you know, um particularly in america obviously the trump nostalgia yeah and um the things with kind of problematic undertones yeah um isn't healthy or great no then, and there's also this you know the this idea of um being nostalgic for th- events that actually haven't occurred yet yeah uh and which i think is very evident in trump's america you know, people, it's, people have conflated future possibilities, Trump supporters have anyway, future possibilities of this sort of mythological America that doesn't exist yet and hopefully won't, uh, mm. you know, with uh, an imagined past that also never really existed. You know, this idea of making America great again, it's like, well, no, it yeah. simultaneously always has been great and never has been great. Yeah. And failing to see that, I mean, it just always postpones... Um, it postpones greatness really for indefinitely um whether your version of greatness is is a sort of right-wing version or a left-wing version or whatever the idea that that you're going to sort of reflect on the past in order to make the future um better is it's a myth you know it's not something that can be achieved through politics certainly so well um it starts individually you know i don't know how much sartre you've read but i'm a big um believer in his idea of individual responsibility yes whereas if you try to be the best you can individually and you know try and love people yeah it should hopefully rise from, from exactly so that's yeah. what i'm trying to do this year yeah be, good that's a good resolution be better and uh, that's try. that's the best resolution really i'm gonna steal that one can i steal that one? <laughs> i'm gonna have that yeah but um you know nostalgia in your songs as well um some of your most affecting sad songs mm. are steeped in um childhood themes i'm thinking particularly uh kings of the animal kingdom yeah uh, which is the you know, uh, wonderful rhyme of, uh, of euthanasia <laughs> and uh, um, um, Eugene Morris, yeah, which is a beautiful love song but mm. based on you know the relationship uh, Maurice Sendak yeah you know um, so you know you use childhood a lot as well to, yeah well that and that one's an interesting one because it's kind of a double dose of nostalgia it's, it's you know comes from my own nostalgia of, of reading Where the Wild Things Are when I was a kid mm. Uh, and loving it and kind of falling in love with Maurice Sendak's writing and, and illustrations and everything. Um, but also in an imagined nostalgia um, between Maurice Sendak and Eugene Glynn, you know, who are, are now dead. And, and I didn't know them even when they were alive personally. So I, yeah. I don't actually have a window onto their own personal nostalgia sure. for their relationship, but I, I imagined it. So yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a double, double whammy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think it's, you know, just sorry, one, one yeah. last little thing about nostalgia is that uh, I'm constantly afraid of falling into a songwriting trap where um, nostalgia as a songwriting vehicle becomes a crutch in itself. Mm. And so I'm sort of always working against it. And, and I think I have, other than Flux Capacitor, which was very um, explicitly... Um, yeah. Uh, an album about from nostalgia. Title onwards. From yeah, exactly. Um, I've really tried to fight against it, and it creeps in anyway. So it's sort of an unstoppable force. I remember a couple of years. I think it might have been the end of the road show. Was uh, um, something else? Um, you were saying how uh, Ariel um, jokingly said all your songs are just about about nostalgia in your childhood, and it actually hurt your feelings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. I don't. I mean, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to. You know, I don't want to only write songs about that. I don't think I do. But no. Um, no. But it is. You know, it's it's something. I think everyone, every creative person, 
has that sort of tendency that that you know to to lean on a particular device or something. My, my friend told me all my songs are small talk about the weather, and it's kind of. And when he pointed there, I was like, oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do scene set a lot with trees and shit. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think you know, it's it's good to sort of recognize those those devices and those crutches in a way. And, and work against them and know that they'll creep in no matter what. But, yeah. You know, try Self-awareness. Fight the yeah, yeah, yeah. Same as healthy nostalgia. Yeah. Self-awareness. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. there's nothing wrong with uh, looking back and as my name is Matthias, um, illustrates is what creates you. Yeah. Um, as an individual, but then it's about the individual moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah. So right now I'm in this zone of writing songs about the future um, very consciously for the next full band records it's a it's a uh, very much a, a future futurist album um that's mm. coming out but i still no, notice nostalgia creeping in <laughs> to even those songs so i'm imagining people's nostalgia for the past in the future which is you know another thing but uh so we'll yeah. see how that goes but well i look forward to it coming yeah. out thanks yeah well thanks for talking to me yeah thanks for talking cheers and uh, happy new year Thank you for the Christmas card It's cute the way the chihuahua is dressed like a reindeer And as you say, Feliz Navidad Is a caption worthy of a modern Spanish Shakespeare But it's only been ten years or so Can you really have forgotten I'm a Jew So Xmas means as much to me as the story of the Maccabees means to you. Truth be told, I don't particularly mind which religious observance is on your mind. It's nice to hear from you, to hear about your new job too. But I find this kind of communication fairly one step up. From looking at photos of your kids on the internet Am I nostalgic for the past? No, I think I'm nostalgic for things that haven't happened yet In the future, anything could be real That's the thing about it In the future, it might be a whole new deal and our lives much less crowded In the future we might get the chance to talk More than twice a year In the future we'll have some space to walk And space is the final frontier louder than 10,000 pelican wings as they fly over the ocean just to turn around and fly back again what's the point in birds somewhere there's a pelican wondering what's the point in us and that's a relevant point the pelican brings up maybe it's one we should discuss These days we've got other places to be and other people to see Well, especially you, maybe not so much me But anyway, say, just for the sake of saying Things might change, they have a way of changing For instance, I've compiled some pictures here On my external hard drive I've pasted our faces on the cover of the sci-fi book Called Lovers in the Year 2055. In the future, we'll sing a whole new tune. I really wouldn't doubt it. In the future, the sky might have two moons. When it's not too clouded, in the future, who knows where we'll be? We might be neighbors on Mars watching our old 
planet disappeared Playing shows in the Martian Mars Seasons, greetings, and Happy New Year. Thanks for the Christmas card. It's cute the way the Chihuahua is dressed like a reindeer. 